Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. So welcome to another edition of In Between. I'm Bill Curley. And I'm Holly Hudley, and today we <laughs> I didn't know you were waiting for me to fill in the blank. I, I, I just realized, and we have Dr. Jim Bankston with us today. I wish all of you guys, our many widespread listeners, could see the faces on the screen, because it's really nice to see you, Jim. Good to be with you. I appreciate uh, being invited. Look forward to sharing uh, this time with the two of you and to uh, that vast audience out there. <laughs> well, uh, I, I want to tell everybody just really up front that if it were not for Jim Bankston, I would not be at St. Paul's. I would not be teaching Ordinary Life. Jim uh, invited me to come onto the staff with the specific purpose of teaching, as I remember his saying, I want you to teach that Sunday school class. Because <laughs> I had taught mind and spirit and then resigned after 10 years and so Jim helped me. He ushered me through the transfer of the ordination process to become ordained as a full elder in the United Methodist Church. And I've been teaching ordinary life for 20 years now. And I tell people, if you like what I have to say, this is when Jim was our senior pastor, which he was for what, 17? 19. Years? 19 years. I would say... If you like anything I say, please tell Dr. Jim Bankson. If you don't like anything I say, tell me. Not, <laughs> anyway, not, not I love Jim. I, <laughs> <laughs> Some people I, I did a told you what things, I did. I think at St. Paul's, a few anyway. But one of the thing, best things I did was to invite you to do this class. And I'm really glad uh, how it's worked through the years and where it is now. I really like sitting in this sort of um, what I want to call like a fractal effect, right? That um, Jim brings Bill in, Holly, who probably was 14 when Bill first came along, but ends up in ordinary life and just kind of the beautiful intergenerational piece of that. Because um, by both of your presence, I really feel like my life has been transformed in a positive way. Um so I, I, I just like all that interconnection. And I am positive that um, both of you are fractals. In other words, you do things in small ways that impact in big ways. And um, I'm appreciative for that, for sure. Well, you know, Jim, uh, and I don't want to take any more time because I want to hear what you have to say, but Jim has been instrumental in creating an atmosphere of openness and inclusivity at St. Paul's. He's paid some huge prices for that. And um, I, we're also indebted to him about that. I remember Jim, something you said at a breaking a silence dinner once you said in a talk you gave that you thought the the church had lost its opportunity to be prophetic in the LBGTQ plus arena, and it was now our task to see if we could remain relevant. Given where we are right now in our political turmoil, 
how do you see the church's role in um, being inclusive and healing? Well, I, you know, you would think with, with all of the uh, ethical issues that abound in our society today, that there would be a place for the church to have uh, a faithful witness. And uh, I still want to believe that's true. I guess part of the problem in the church is that we're so fragmented, not unlike society at large. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, we sometimes speak about being divided as a country, but that division is in two, three, four ways, perhaps. But in the in the witness of the larger church, we are we're much more divided than that. So. Uh, I've always been a person that tried to find some common ground, and I hope uh, we can get to the point where we can agree upon a, a basic inclusion of all of God's children uh, in the future of uh, our religious uh, community and also in the future of our national community. Uh, I really think that's it at the heart of, of where we are right now. I think our society has changed so much moving from a, a dominant, uh, quite primarily male-run culture to a much more diverse nation, culture, country, where we're trying to find a place for everybody at the table, and that's caused a lot of tension. And I, I really think that's a lot of what we're dealing with today. So the, the church, by all rights, ought to have something to say about that, uh, especially based upon uh, our belief uh, in the ministry of Jesus. One of the things we talked about on Sunday was an idea of belonging, right? And when someone feels like their identity is at stake or that their identity is being threatened, then their sense of belonging is also challenged. And we tend to kind of, I think, become smaller when we feel like we don't belong and grab onto the things that speak to the small places inside of us. Do you think that that's true? Do you think that, how do you a, do you think that's true? And B, what do you think it means to create centers of belonging where we're all belong? Well, it, absolutely. Uh, that, that should be a common goal. That should be common ground. It, ironically enough, uh, you know, uh, we've had a lot of people through the years that didn't feel that they belonged very much, uh, immigrant communities, mm -hmm. uh, African-American communities. Uh, you know, women weren't able to vote until 100 years ago, um, didn't have seats at the places of power. Uh, and so a lot of folks didn't feel uh, they belonged. And, and, you know, in an ironic kind of way now, it's people that look like me, old white guys, <laughs> They feel like they're being pushed out. Uh, so somehow we have to uh, have to find a way to uh, be larger than we think we have been able to be in the past. It'll be a wonderful thing for us if we can find a way to do that. And some people will have to take the leadership to help make that happen. I believe in leadership and I believe uh, with good leaders uh, in the church, in uh, our nation, uh, we can uh, we can move in that direction at least. It's a lifelong journey, no doubt. Yeah. I have been uh, reading some Roman Catholic spiritual directors uh, recently. Uh, Jim Michael Morewood is one. We had him here from Australia, 
and that got me introduced to a man in Ireland named Daramut Amuraku, who is also in the same spiritual director's group as Michael. And that got me to another spiritual director in South Africa, who <clears throat> Albert Nolan, who um, did his theological work in the context of apartheid. And I've thought a couple of things since this recent presidential administration and election and all the divisiveness and everything about that is that, boy, it would be nice if we had a truth and reconciliation process in this country to really reach across the racial divides uh, um, among in the white community to, to get people with such divergent opinions on this, see if they could talk to each other. Yeah, it, uh, we just have to do that. You know, uh, it, you know, you boil it down to a, a, a small microcosm. And in small settings, you know, when people have a place at the table and are able to talk to each other, tensions are released and eased, and you do find some common ground. And so if you can do that in a small setting, uh, you have to be able to expand, let the ripples go out and expand that to larger settings as well. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, we're at that place, but I don't want to be naive about it. I know uh, there are, you know, people have claimed territory and it's really hard to uh, feel like you have to give up some territory in order for someone else to have some. So uh, I think it's going to be a real challenge for us. There's a definition of, um, I'm, I feel like I'm repeating myself from Sunday, but it speaks to this, I think, the definition of indigenous that Robin Wall Kimmerer uses in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, is um, a sense of belonging that prizes the healing of all beings. And the, the, the two words that seem interesting to me are healing and all. <laughs> and I mean, I love your thoughts on kind of, no matter what this sort of political environment is right now that it is clear that we have repair work to do and that we have healing work to do um what are your thoughts both of y'all's thoughts on that well uh you know we we sometimes speak about the original sin of america uh being slavery um but we've got more than one original sin it, it our interaction with um, uh, the indigenous peoples here, uh, we, we've never healed from that. We, right. And we've certainly never healed uh, from uh, whoever thought it was a good idea for one people to enslave another people for economic gain uh, has saddled us with uh, emotional scars that, and in early days, actual physical scars that we are still struggling with today on, on how to move our society beyond those original sins that we came to live with. That was part of how we live. And, you know, we're almost duplicating that now with uh, undocumented workers, which is uh, we're dependent upon the labor of uh, these wonderful folks, but uh, keep them in a subclass. So we, we've got just Lots of things, I think, as a society that we have to begin to be honest about and uh, move gradually toward, hopefully not too gradually, move toward, let me say, uh, 
a greater uh, sense of uh, appreciation for all the tapestry of peoples that make up our nation today. When you, when you were, I remember, um, gosh, it had to have been like 15 or 20 years ago when you came and you spoke to Ordinary Life about um, your philosophies of inclusion. And I remember asking you, Dr. Bankston, is this for you a spiritual um, imperative or a personal belief? Um, and I don't, you probably don't remember that question, but I remember what you said. And But I'd be curious how you would respond to that now, like this, this inclusion, this need for inclusion, for creating a whole. Where does that come from for you? Well, um, you know, I, I think it comes from a, a spiritual belief. It, it comes from, uh, if I could just be very basic, it comes from my understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I come from a Christian perspective, albeit uh, uh, on the progressive side of things. But uh, I think sometimes Jesus pushes me and hopefully all of us to be more inclusive than we might uh, initially be inclined to be. So uh, I have felt uh, when uh, some of my prejudices might be getting in the way mm -hmm. that uh, it's Jesus that pushes me to get beyond those things. So uh, mm -hmm. I think it's a personal belief, also from a personal experience. When I was a young pastor, uh, you know, I found out if you, people in your church knew you would listen, they'd tell you almost anything. And it's a sacred responsibility. And people mm -hmm. did tell me almost anything, including uh, their stories about how hard it was uh, to be different, uh, that is to be gay. Especially I began my ministry in East Texas. And I remember so well, I could call names today of people who uh, came to me and said, you know, how hard it is and was for them to be gay in a small community. And uh, I just, uh, you know, began to believe that there's uh, something not right about that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't spend our lives making life harder for other people. Yeah, so true. So, so Jim, true. I want to ask you a, a question. Um, I mentioned this man, Albert Nolan, who has written his theology in the context of South Africa in apartheid. He's Roman Catholic, he's white, and he says that his experience with Jesus <clears throat> leads him to believe that, that taking sides is an okay thing to do because Jesus in the prophetic tradition took the side of the dispossessed the people who were marginalized, the people who were experiences of, of injustice. And that makes a great deal of sense to me. But as a pastor, I don't want make, taking sides to also create alienation. So what kind of advice have you got for me about that? Wow. <laughs> yeah, you know that... Uh... That's a hard question because, uh, you know, it, it, it's a matter, I always thought it was a matter of, of 
what's the end game? What do you want to accomplish? And which is it that brings people uh, toward that uh, beloved community, uh, to quote Martin Luther King Jr., uh, in, a, in a more full way, is it, is it alienating people who have the power and, or is it inviting people who have the power uh, to examine consciousness and be uh, engaged in a conversation? And usually I have found if you, if you push people, they push back. But if you in, invite people to, to come on a journey with you, uh, they might go with you. So it, in some ways, I think it, it's easy to try to see yourself as uh, so prophetic that you just say uh, any, anything to anybody that might offend. But it, it, it might make you feel better, but it doesn't accomplish anything in terms of moving people forward. So uh, I guess I've been a... a a pastor and and uh, in that context of being a pastor trying to be a prophetic pastor at the same time so uh, I, I always said when I preached you know uh, you can tell people what you think um, in, in some ways it's hard not to do that uh, you can tell people what they ought to think and most people push back on that or you can invite people to think together about uh, a response to the gospel imperative. I always tried to do the third, sometimes uh, probably uh, was guilty of the first two, but uh, I think, uh, you know, pastors don't have quite the luxury of being as totally prophetic as maybe some more independent folks in society might be. And I guess there's a place for both. My wife always says, you know, if somebody's not out there pushing a little harder than I am, we don't really move the, move the needle very much. So uh, I think it takes both of us. So maybe this is not a fair question to lead in with, with this, but... The other one wasn't either, but... I, I, I don't... That's okay. Uh, <laughs> well, it was very pastoral the way you answered it, though. <laughs> yeah. Where, where, where do you see the United Methodist Church heading, Jim? Wow, of course, I've spent all my life in what is now the United Methodist Church, born and raised in the in the Methodist Church. Um, you know, we're we're moving toward a, a great divide. We are. Uh, I don't see anything out there that's going to keep us from separating into two segments, at least, of the church. One that is more inviting of uh, the LGBTQ plus community and one that is not. And it's, uh, it's really interesting that that is the uh, point of the division for us, but uh, that's it. it there, there are other factors involved, but I think we're headed toward becoming two different denominations. One would call themselves traditional, traditionalist, and one would call themselves uh, inclusive or progressive. Um, you know, we tried to have a larger tent in which we could all live together, still call ourselves United Methodist and disagree. Uh, one local church might not be as inclusive of LGBTQ people. Another one might be, but we would still be under the same umbrella. Uh, we had a plan for that, the one church plan. Uh, and that did pass general conference. 
Uh, it might have passed if it had only been a vote in the United States, but that's, we are a global church. So uh, yeah, I, I think uh, hopefully if we do split, uh, the protocol of uh, separation with uh, grace and reconciliation, I think is what it's called. Uh, mm. Maybe we'll find some grace and reconciliation in division. That's, that seems to be the way forward right now. And do you see a timetable for this? You know, it's odd because uh, General Conference was supposed to have met in May of this year and couldn't because of the uh, coronavirus. Uh, it's scheduled for next year in late August, early September. May not even be able to meet by then, even if there's a vaccine available. You know, in a global church, having that vaccine available to all the people that need to attend a meeting um, and be safe uh, might be very hard if the vaccine's not available till May or June of next year to get everybody together by August of that of that of next year. So, uh, and that just leaves us in limbo. I'm hoping the longer we stay in limbo that somebody will find a, a third way that will allow us to uh, find some reconciliation other than through separation. Um, but, th but there, uh, you know, don't want to be naive again because there are, there are people planning right now to absolutely separate from the United Methodist Church, whatever happens. So, uh, and, and to become uh, a church that is not open, just, just to be honest and, and uh, particular about this, to ordination of uh, gay people or uh, marriage of uh, same gender uh, couples. Mm. So, uh, yeah, there, there's people that are going to form a church, whether we officially uh, divide or not. There are people that are going to form a church around uh, those values. That's very sad. Yeah. I, I was going to change the subject dr drastically. I was going to ask you, uh, what what feeds your soul? What are you? Where are you finding new light and nurture in your own spiritual path right now? Well, uh, your family is important to me. Uh, I have uh, three grandchildren in my home with me right now. Two are uh, in one's high school, one's in middle school, and. Uh, they needed to get out of their home today, so they're in my home doing their uh, virtual classes. I have uh, a uh, one of my college students is home to surprise her mother tonight for her um, her, her mother's fiftieth birthday is today, and so we're going to gather together tonight safely. Uh, we'll be careful uh, for my daughter's fiftieth birthday, so uh, family's important to me. Uh, watching the generation come after me. I can observe not only my children, but my grandchildren now. I'm hopeful for the other people who are part of the younger generation. I just get inspired to see uh, young people who uh, believe in inclusion and believe in a spirituality that we haven't defined very well for them. Um, you know, it, it, beyond family, I, I love to, uh, you know, some of the non-traditional things. I like to walk. I like to be out in nature. I love to stand in the middle of a river in Colorado and fish for trout. trout. Uh, I love to laugh with friends and tell stories. Uh, and I, I believe that, uh, you know, there is a, uh, a mysterious presence that uh, is not near as anxious as we are about 
all that is happening and that uh, the mystery of uh, that uh, presence uh, finally will bring bring us toward that uh, that presence itself. So uh, I read some. I don't read as much as I ought to. I read contemporary things. I read magazines and newspapers and occasionally delve into a book that makes me think a little bit. Sometimes I read books that don't contain any thoughts I haven't thought. And so I... I need to, I need to read books <laughs> that challenge me. That's the kind I like. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe you've earned the right to just do some joy reading yeah, for a yeah, little while. Yeah. I'm, I surely am after I finish my dissertation, definitely looking forward to just reading like murder mysteries yeah. or something yeah. like that, which yeah. is dark, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you just said something about that mysterious presence that sort of seems to be like, you know, so dark matter in the cosmos is they think this thing that keeps us from flying apart that we don't know so much about how it works just that it works um because somehow this unified whole and i don't mean unified like harmonious i just mean this whole existence is not flying apart and they say that we have this same thing in our bodies right this like interstitial fluid that keeps our bodies kind of working in harmony um and, and, and there's so much to kind of, there's like two paths to go on that. Teilhard de Chardin talks about that sort of um, bend toward the omega point that is this sort of unified consciousness um, that he says is kind of inevitable, like an inevitable part of, of, of evolution. But Martin Luther King on the other side says, nah, time is neutral. And if we want to bend the arc, we got to decide where we're going to sort of step in on that arc. Um, yeah, any thoughts about that? Yeah, I listened to the Michael Norwood lecture uh, and uh, yeah, he was fascinating. Uh, I suspect mm -hmm. that uh, the range of response to him was pretty wide that, uh, you know, some people wondered where he'd been all their life and probably others uh, <laughs> probably, you know, couldn't, I don't know if y'all got feedback on it, uh, probably maybe couldn't relate to it or it was a little bit scary, you know, it was a little bit unsettling because yeah, uh, he's very non-traditional in, in his thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, let me be a little bit more traditional in that, in the, in the biblical tradition, uh, it's interesting if you think about uh, the apocalyptic uh, literature in the Bible, mm -hmm. which is found in somewhat in Ezekiel and some of the gospel texts, and uh, Jesus even has words about it, but primarily in the book of Revelation, which envisions these uh, great, great clashes between good and evil, dark and light and scary things happening. And so we sometimes equate what we see in our world today is an apocalyptic time. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the prophetic tradition in primarily the Old Testament, but also with Jesus, uh, believed that if you just held up what was right to the conscience of people, uh, that there would be a significant number of people who would choose that if you expose them to their sins, made a prophetic witness that humanity could change the way things were going. Uh, if, if you were worshiping other gods, if, if you were living an immoral life with the 
prophet came along like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Amos and said, let justice flow down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing string and do away with your uh, meaning, meaningless uh, festivals that don't move your heart, that people would respond to that, at least some would. And so that the prophetic tradition is the belief that uh, people can make a difference. They can write things. And interestingly enough, the apocalyptic tradition has given up on that. It believes mm. that the only way forward, we're in such bad shape that God has to enter and act. <laughs> and so that's the, the heart of, the, beyond all the scary stuff, the, the theology behind the apocalyptic tradition uh, is that uh, we're at a point where you know, we're dependent totally on what well, we don't have the will, the inclination. We don't have uh, the, uh, a large enough group. Uh, we can't get it done. God's going to have to step in for us. So uh, biblically speaking, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not much on the cosmology stuff. Though. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I appreciate it. I'm just not steeped in it. <laughs> so I, I speak better talking about the biblical tradition uh, and how that might relate to what some of these folks are trying to say to us from a very different perspective. I think of them as both kind of like cosmologies, right? Like the biblical tradition is its own cosmology it is, yeah. or way of sort of seeing the world just as the sort of evolutionary tradition is also a way um, you know, of seeing the world and how do we sort of integrate these stories um, and some of the work that I love around like Thomas Berry, um, who was an Episcopalian, um, um, Brian Swim, who's a professor of mine, is the integration of story so that we have a single story, um, which we can all, as a human species, connect to in some way. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, the, the, the uh, Greek meaning of apocalypse is, is to reveal or to, to reveal what's to, hidden, to fold back. Yeah. 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 So it's not an it is a death of some sort, but it's also like um, a rebirth. You know, it's something something to be found out. Yeah. Yeah. I think what mm -hmm. I appreciate about Michael Morewood and others and the work that Holly brings to ordinary life is that. Um, Jesus is, he, he preached a recovery of the prophetic tradition that said that God is here, that, and, and if you have a theology that says we need to wait for God to intervene, that means that God is out there somewhere, and Jesus said, no, 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 God is here. Um, where two or three of you are gathered in the presence of my name and memory, there I am, or there this this presence that you talk about is is right here, right now, and I think that we having an opportunity to see in such a different way since the COVID, since George Floyd, since all the things that have been unveiled or the, in this current apocalypse, we're having a chance to see things differently, and hopefully with more um, love and compassion and, and attractiveness. That's a word I want to use, that we could attract people into this vision of rest. We need peace. 
So, Jim, do you, um, if you could uh, come back and preach at St. Paul's, what would you say? <laughs> yeah. Um, Given the fact you know, that we're electionary church. <laughs> well, that, that's right. It uh, might limit your options. Yeah. When, when Jeff uh, was coming to St. Paul's, he called me and talked to me and, and uh, he talked about preaching there. And he said, you know, he's always liked to preach a series. And, and I said, well, that, that's fine. Uh, as long as it's based on the lecture, you can do that. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> lecture is a real gift, though, in order in that it, it uh, offers us uh, uh, a, a series of opportunities to uh, eventually get at whatever you want to say uh, based upon the, the text. Uh, you know, I, I think in, in these uh, in these times, uh, I would be talking about uh, uh, the inherent worth of all people, uh, a place at the table, uh, common ground, uh, uh, a heart that uh, is uh, empathetic with uh, others, um, you know, those, those kinds of things. Uh, we, I just think we're, we're very fragmented and we, we have a real challenge in America of trying to make it a, a nation where we kind of see each other as family. We kind of see those that are not exactly like us as the other right now. So I'm doing a Sunday school class for young adults at St. Paul's every Sunday. And, and our uh, lessons for the fall have, has been uh, what the Bible says about and uh, or actually I changed it because the Bible doesn't say about like climate change that I wanted to deal with and other things. But what the Bible and various things. But we've primarily now the last few weeks uh, come to deal with the Bible and the other. How is it that uh, we relate to that person that is not like us in some ways, in some ways is like us. But it seems to me the whole biblical witness is about relationships, uh, relating to people that are pretty much like you is hard enough, but relating to people that are not so much like you. Uh, and so we have some real wisdom in the Bible. And I would try to mine those aspects of the scripture that encourage us to find a broader perspective on things of uh, being in relationship to those that are not exactly like us. But I think that's where we are as a nation right now. How do we do that? Yeah. One of my favorite um, uh, people, um, justice workers, thinkers right now that's living is Brian Stevenson, who um, started and um, envisioned the Equal Justice Initiative and the um, the uh, memorial for the memorial to those who had been formerly enslaved that that is in Montgomery, Alabama, and his words that I just hang on all the time are we need to get proximate. So we can't stand over here and talk about loving your neighbor and stay on the other side of the field. You know, we have to get proximate to the situations, to the circumstances and to the people that we say we care about, that we say are our neighbors, right? And understand that what they're going through. 
the same time I say that, I also uphold that there are people in this world, in our personal lives, who are harmful, who can do harm to our psyche and our spirit. And so there's this tension of getting proximate and having boundaries that protect your own soul or spirit. Do you um, have any thoughts about, either one of y'all have any thoughts about that? (laughs) This tension of both proximity and also boundaries. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, um, living uh, with your heart, uh, connecting to someone else's heart uh, is a beautiful thing uh, unless that person means you harm. And uh, you do have to have some boundaries. Absolutely. Uh, there, there are boundaries that we have to observe. And so it, it becomes uh, a about trust, I think, you know, where uh, boundaries uh, exist when trust uh, isn't great enough. And sometimes trust isn't warranted. People, you know, send you messages saying you can't trust me. And to to trust someone that's untrustworthy is is foolish. Absolutely. True. That's how you get hurt, you know, and, and, uh, you know, not to, not to, completely give up somehow if you've been hurt and everybody's been hurt in a relationship uh, and and yet not give up on love and trust (laughs) but you do become a little more uh, circumspect uh, a little more cautious Uh, that's probably not a bad thing you know you you do have to have some boundaries yeah yeah I'd I'd be interested to hear Bill's thoughts on that I jumped in there Bill me too (laughs) <laughs> well, I I think that um, I, I had this image come to me when I was doing my own spiritual practice this morning, which it currently involves, uh, among other things, I, I think spiritual practice involves head space, heart space, and hand space. And uh, my mm-hmm. head space right now is reading a new book by Kathleen Singh called Unbound, which is her understanding of the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism. And the thought that came to me is that when it comes to some other people on this planet, we need to treat them like uh, children who are throwing temper tantrums and put them in time out, meaning, you know, just have nothing to do with them for a while and kind of let things cool down. We had Cindy Wigglesworth on as a podcast guest a couple of weeks ago and she talks about the importance of when really stimulated by upsetting events and people the importance of just taking a deep breath and stepping back and keeping your mouth shut and just kind of let people calm down and then come back in the room with a different way to approach the situation. And I think we're going to have to do that in the, in the weeks and months ahead as this country trying to go forward. It seems like right now we have a president in office who's having a temper tantrum. And uh, I don't know how we're going to make the peaceful transition from now to January the 20th, but I have faith in the, the American system that it will happen. And then, we have to go forward. Some people are very disappointed. Some people are elated and we have to live together. We have to figure out ways 
to get along together. We're smart people and we can't keep behaving in dumb ways. That's my thought. <laughs> Ain't argue with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know a, a wise guy I look up to once told me you have to let silence do the heavy lifting sometimes. Yeah. But I also think that there's something to be said for letting our hands and feet do the talking, right? Um, sometimes we have to allow um, those who are holding on to anger, holding on to hurt, holding on to whatever it is they're holding on to, do the work over here while um, those of us who can keep moving forward in action and on behalf of love, justice, and mercy. Um, yeah, I, I don't think we're all called to do the same thing. And mm -hmm. uh, there's some yeah. people who are called to be um, real huge supporters either financially or emotionally or in whatever way of people who are on the front lines of doing social justice. Not everybody's called to be on that front line. Right. Yeah. 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 We find our place on that. I like to think of it like a golden thread, right? If we think that that moral universe does bend towards justice, which I'm not sure about, to be honest, I do think that our hands and feet play a big part in that, but we all have a little place along that thread and we sort of have to pick it pick it up where we can. <laughs> yeah, we have to move the needle always toward compassion. Hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Well, Jim, I'm 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 eternally grateful to you for your ministry and your witness. Um I remember when you attended your retirement celebration at St. Paul's. Um the standing ovation that you got of yeah. appreciation and adulation by the people of the St. Paul's community for all of the work that you've done to push the needle toward compassion and inclusion. And uh, we're all grateful to you for that. Right. For sure. Yeah, thank you to both of you. And, and uh, you know, it's a team effort. Uh, you certainly, uh, you certainly uh, were a great part of the team when I was there and had wonderful other members of the, of the community that were part of the team as well. And to watch Holly, you know, from that 14 year old girl <laughs> to move into the kind of uh, deep thoughts and spiritual leadership that you have now, uh, is just a, a great thing to behold. That's kind of why you do what you do to watch, to watch things like that happen. Yep. And it, it, uh, it is inspiring. So thank you to both of well, you. I stand on, I stand on broad shoulders. Both of them are on this screen. So thank you. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> we'll see you all in ordinary life this week. Okay. All right. Thanks. All right.